I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today, where we talk about current issues facing law enforcement, forensic, and crime scene investigations. Today, I'm joined with my co-hosts, Leslie McCauley and Shelly Rossi. All right, so we'll actually start off with a, a, a sort of crazy news story came out on April 4th uh, out of Utah with two children were hospitalized in Utah after eating THC candy from a food bank. So 11-year-old, 5-year-old were taken to the hospital Friday night after consuming medicated nerd ropes. Uh, apparently, it was given to uh, the church and the Utah food bank. Uh, it was distributed in 60 bags containing three to four servings. Uh, the labels of the candy indicated that each one contained 400 milligrams of THC. Adults are normally prescribed 15 to 45 milligrams. So, uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's happening. So, Lovely. Utah is not a legal state, right? I don't think that's, so. I wouldn't think so. <laughs> not. I wouldn't think so. Utah, Utah, so. They will be the last state ever to legalize. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of what I was saying. Well, either way, they're, they're handing out uh, highly potent nerd ropes uh, to families at the food bank there. So that, that made the news this week. Wow. So on uh, forensic advice, it's, uh, I guess, a, a forensic question-answer type of deal on Facebook. There's a question camp I thought was uh, pretty interesting. I uh, thought we'd sort of take it on. Without mentioning name of, of who asked, but I think it's actually pretty common. Um, so I'll read this. It says that, uh, <clears throat> and he has some advice that, uh, so I have my BS in forensic science. I loved everything about forensic from a young age. I did a couple of internships, one resulting in employment as a death investigator at a coroner's office. Long story short, I don't like death investigations and left. <laughs> My experience has caused me some questions about whether or not I actually cut out, if I'm cut out for this, I'm going to therapy, got diagnosed with PTSD, and am improving. I wanted to see if anyone else maybe has a similar experience or if people in a career field think it's worth my time to try again, or should I head another direction? Does anyone have suggestions on something in forensics that maybe does not deal so heavily with deaths? I think that specifically what caused my distress and what kind of specific schooling training needed for that position. Wow. So, you know, I, I think there's two things that sort of get touched on there. And it, it, when I read that, it sort of reminded me of, of a story of um, we had some cadets from, I can't remember which police academy, but we were at the forensic center and I was taking photos that day. And so the cadet sort of uh, fired me and said, you know, their interest when all was said and done, what they really wanted to get into was forensic photography. And, and I was sort of explaining to them that in doing this for a while, I don't know of any place that's just forensic photography. Matter of fact, I only knew of one place, which is in Harris County at the, um, at the forensic center where they do autopsies, that there's a person that that's all they do is photograph autopsy. That's the only truly what I know of as a forensic photographer, like by title, that's all you do. Every other CSI I know does everything, right? You do right. you know fingerprints and sketching and 
video and photos and the whole thing, right? So that was the only, I guess, area that I knew that would happen. Well, as this autopsy is going on, I see that the person is slowly like backing away, mm-hmm. backing away. Mm-hmm. And not even halfway through, they are so far against the wall that if they could have pushed through the wall to get further away from the body, they would have, you know, it, it would have. Right. And, and I sort of lean over and say, you know, you're going to have to get closer to take a photo. Right. right? And, and you just see the realization that they were not going to do what they initially thought they were going to do. Right. right? And, and that's sort of what came to mind when I was reading this and, and listening to this, that, you know, and, and I do know, I mean, there's there's certainly a difference between being a death investigator assigned to the coroner's office. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know a lot of the details of it. I don't know if this is a big one where uh, you're just an investigator or if you're also on the body car uh, and you're doing the investigation. It's usually something separate from being a crime scene. Right. But, you know, I don't know of any, at least responding to a crime scene that you're going to be just, you're not going to deal with death. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would think that you would have to start looking at depending on what coursework she had or he had um, in the, you know, in college, then maybe that would qualify for like a lab position where you could do extractions or something like that. Well, I know with like getting a, a master's degree or, or to do like DNA and toxicology and, and correct me if y'all are different, but that normally you got to be like the master degree level, right? Sure. Yes. Um, there are other lab positions um, that I think with a bachelor's, you know, in a science degree uh, that you could, you know, you could be a firearms examiner with a bachelor of science, um, you know, and I know that, that you had mentioned that it was in forensic science, but if it was a forensic science that had a strong science curriculum, then that's going to qualify you for a lot more than, you know, maybe criminal justice. Yep. 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 Right. And I mean, you know, one thing that comes to mind and, uh, you know, Les, you can probably speak on this as far as fingerprint examiner mm-hmm. at a lab. Yeah. Um, like what, what is sort of the, the entry level of a fingerprint examiner that they're looking at? And I'm speaking about like, that's all they do all day. I know that there are some that, that there are some places that's what they employ. Right. Right. So as far as the, the tasks, you mean the job duties or no, what, uh, like what kind of requirements, I guess, if, if you're going to switch oh. to that type of mm-hmm. field. Um, well for us, I mean, it was a lot of extensive on the job training, uh, but we did have formal training um, here in Texas. We all have gone under the structure of a basic, intermediate, and advanced training course. All of those are 40-hour week courses, so those three. Um, and then we branched out into palm print analysis, um, which is another, I think it's a three-day course. Um, and then we just kind of built on it from there. Um, and now... When it comes to fingerprints, depending on the availability of what agency or entity this person would be looking at, um, you could have people who are strictly lab-based that are processing and developing fingerprints, documenting and comparing and identifying fingerprints, and, and typically never see scene work. 
then there are agencies who have um, fingerprint-based people, technicians, but they are also seen responsive. So if there is a murder and there's a patent print, a print that's located in blood, that technician might, their sole responsibility might be developing those patent prints that are available or developing latent prints while another investigator handles the scene documentation. So there's a lot that's, I think, available or a lot of different avenues. It really probably comes down to the area that that person is living in, whether he or she is willing to relocate, um, you know, to what extent they want to go into. And that's probably, I mean, I, I think fingerprints is just one example. There's other forensic disciplines that might have a similar, um, kind of set up where they're not necessarily going to the death investigation scenes, but they're still able to be a lab technician in some aspect. Now I know in, in Austin and it may be different now. I know in the past they actually had like their response teams divided. Like there was a response team that all they responded to were property crimes, right. and burglaries and those type of things. And then there was a, a totally separate team that would go to the major incidents like your murders and, and things like that. So, um, Sort of like you said, I guess, depending on if you're willing to move, if you're willing to look into it, there may be some other options depending on how large of a department and how they run it. Right. Absolutely. So, and it, so it could also be an option of going back to college and, and pursuing a master's and going the the lab route as far as toxicology, DNA, things like that. If, if like Shelly said, depending on... Um, their schooling background for their their bachelor degree. You know, the the second thing I want to touch on was was her saying that you know she had um, I guess been diagnosed with PTSD over dealing with the deaths and those type of things. And and Shelly, we had actually touched on that um, uh, last time we had talked that uh, that's become more prevalent at the conferences. And and my my main point before even talking about it is just that you know she made the comment of. Um, I don't know if she said, is it normal or, or do other people have this problem? And I think what we're starting to learn is that many people have had this problem if we just haven't really been addressing it, right? So I know that that's come up at just about every conference is mental health and dispatch and patrol. And, and then you recently spoke about it being with, with crime scene investigators. Well, and I just think that, you know, I mean, maybe the reflection on that isn't that she was truly suffering from PTSD, but maybe, I mean, and I'm not trying to say that, or he or she, I'm not trying to say that they weren't, but when you think that no one else thinks about stuff like that, or no one else is bothered by the things that you see, maybe you think that it's just you. And so therefore, maybe you have PTSD because no one else is talking about how terrible this stuff is that we have to see. And, you know, and, and I, my recommendation for that would be that um, if, you know, there was a counselor or a, a doctor that was helping that person through that period of time, that that would be a question better suited for that professional to see if that is something that that person should explore you know, if, if that's, or if that's just going to be another episode, right. That it just stacks on top of what you've already had to deal with. So 
I, I just think that more and more we're seeing that people are are not internalizing it as much. They are starting to vocalize that it's not normal for us to see what we see and to be vigilant of our teammates that they don't then suffer. Yeah. I mean, I think it's becoming a lot more normal for us to, I mean, it's always been normal for us to talk with one another. I mean, uh, to talk about a scene or those type of things. Uh, and many times, you know, we'll, we'll joke and there's some dark humor and things like that, that we do to sort of just release that stress. But I think to make the comment of that scene bothered me is something sort of new to the conversation, right? Sure. That, um, you know, this is keeping me up at night. I'm having, you know, nightmares of this. I'm having thoughts of this. It's, it's beyond the norm of, of the scene. And, I think all of us have been there. I mean, if you've been doing this long enough that, you know, we've all had that scene or even numerous scenes that have stuck with you longer. And and you think about uh, uh, way after the fact and and even currently, but I guess to a point, you also don't dismiss me. I've seen it in, in every aspect of law enforcement is there's people that really have a thought and a desire that this is what they want to do, but there's no way to tell someone what it is until they actually do it. Right. I mean, you can go to the Academy and you can go to FTO. And I think that's sort of the biggest uh, realization is just from leaving the Academy and going into the field with your FTO and learning, okay, sort of like had the foundation. Now we're actually doing it. And then when that FTO leaves and you're the only one in that car and you're the first one to arrive to a scene, no one else is with you. And now comes the reality that, you know, um, you know, help is a radio away. Help is coming. But for the most part, you know, you're it. Right. And there's a certain point that uh, people realize they're not cut out for policing and they're not cut out for crime scene. They're not cut out for whatever they chose. And, and sadly, sometimes it's further along uh, in that process. Well, the most disheartening thing that, and that Leslie and I have talked about for what seems like a hundred years, but, um, (laughs) is these kids that go to college and they're in their senior year and they're in their last semester and they want to come intern with us. And, you know, they've gone to a decorated college and they are in, you know, the lab for the first few days. And then the call comes in and it's summer and it's the Texas heat with the high humidity. And, and we go out to a scene and everything that they read and everything that they studied and every, you know, picture that they looked at, they were not prepared for it to be real life, you know, and, um, it, it's that realization, like, I can't do this, but I've just invested X amount of dollars at this university. And now what do I do? Because I can't do this. Right. I mean, y'all, y'all have, uh, interns from, you know, very prestigious universities that are, you know, $30,000 a semester, you know, and by the time they're getting to you, they're four years in, right? Yep. Right. So, I mean, 
how many of them have actually, I guess, voiced that to you? I mean, how many have you like been on scene and they've, they've actually verbally said, I'm not going to be able to do this. We've, for me, oh, I just said, we've had a few over the years who, um, maybe not have gotten to the point of saying, I can't do this, but we've had several who, over the years who have said, um, you know, have asked, can I come talk to you? And, you know, I went to this scene or I went to that scene and I thought I would be okay with it, but I'm not sure. And, you know, and just talking to them and finding out how they feel, um, what surprises me in, in the particular example um, that you read was that person stated that he or she went and did two internships. So I'm curious as to what type of internships they did, um, like in what aspect, what type of forensics did they encounter that they didn't, they weren't exposed to a dead body or they weren't exposed maybe to the volume. Um, You know, for us, it seems like week one or week two, you're going to your first dead body. (laughs) So, um, right. Yeah. I mean, depending on how busy an agency you're with. Right. Right. And so you, you experience it very quickly now, years and years ago when Chelly and I were young, uh, younger, um, (laughs) we, we did have, that must've been like, (laughs) right. I think it was a dream. Um, no, we did have a young intern, I won't go into the specifics, um, but she went with me to a death investigation. The body was out in the woods and it was, for lack of better terms, a fresh body, uh, meaning that, you know, even with our Texas heat, there really was no smell. Um, you know, it, there was very minimal insect activity things like that. So certainly decomposition was not a factor. Um, and this intern did just fine until we got to the point of getting ready to roll the body over to photograph the backside and she nearly fainted. (laughs) And so then here we are calling EMS back to the scene, not for the, the victim, but for the intern. So, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, like Chelly and I have always talked about this and Dan, same thing with you of, we would much rather a student go through, you know, an internship and get a realistic impression because TV does, does not do the job justice, unfortunately. And we hate to see a kid invest three or four, four and a half years thinking that this is their lifelong dream and then get to the first dead body and pass out or realize, oh, I don't but, like but They physically can't do this. Right, right. Right. And so, you know, it's, I mean, it's unfortunate. And, you know, I, I thank God every day that I landed in the field that I did. And, you know, I didn't have really any significant prep for it either. Cause I think we, it's safe to say all three of us got into forensics before it was popular, before it was really talked about. There weren't any shows about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, we didn't have that sparking our interest. I think it was for all of us, it was just a natural interest of ours and it just kind of fell into place. So well, and if I can extend on that too, like, so totally opposite example 
of what Leslie gave, but during Hurricane Rita, um, myself and Christine Ramirez went to a scene of a not fresh um, scene. It was two victims uh, that had ultimately accidentally carbon monoxide. They died from carbon monoxide poisoning, uh, but we had an intern with us and she could not even make it to the front porch before she had to turn around and go back to our crime scene truck. And we were, I mean, it was, let's see, Rita was at the end of summer. So in October, I believe, if I remember correctly. So she was well into her, her fall internship. And to my knowledge, she never pursued forensics. That was just that, that was the day that decided for her that this job was not for her. So, you know, she wasn't a young intern like what Leslie had with her. She was, you know, she, she, I think was in probably her late twenties, early thirties. So, you know, you, you try to say, well, maybe it's just the young kids, you know, that are just fresh out of college. But I mean, it's the, you know, no, I, I really think it depends on the person. I really do. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, we've seen people that have finished out their careers and uh, retired from the military and, and getting into law enforcement and forensic things later in, in their life. And I, I personally don't think that the, the young part matters as much as just the person themselves. Some people just really are, are bothered by it. And I don't know what that says about us, but uh, <laughs> you know, so. we're not going to discuss that. That's another show. <laughs> right. <Exactly. laughs> <laughs> probably has to be a psychologist on with us or something like that <laughs> right <laughs> we've always said we're a special case <laughs> so, so what so what do you do with that though i mean like you know jelly in the an example you're given uh later in their internship i mean is your you have to finish that internship to get that degree, right? I mean, you can't really like change course your last semester. Right. So we have safeguards in place at the lab that is the exact reason why, you know, there's luckily for us, we have a very large crime lab. And so, you know, that would be a case where we would take that intern off of call rotation. They would then do more administrative duties like, you know, assisting in our property room or, you know, assisting with the administrative duties that we all get to do that, that TV never shows that we do. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that's the kind of thing where, you know, like helping out in the, the lab with, you know, observing processing evidence. But um, when instances like that happen, unless, you know, that intern comes back saying, Hey, you know what, like that, was abnormal for me. I think I have a stomach bug, which it just negatively affected me. But as far as, you know, kind of any kind of additional trauma, I didn't experience any of that. And I'm ready to go to the next scene, you know, or sometimes it's just, it's a shock. And so sure. their first scene is very shocking, but then after they digest it and they get some sleep and they talk about it with one of us, then they're like, okay, I'm ready to go again. So, you know, you really have to be careful, you know, with, yeah, with not, that. Not to say that they're like totally overwhelmed and not able to do this. Sure. Yep. 
I think everybody, when they first, I mean, again, what we see on a regular basis, people are not supposed to see, right? This right. is not something that is normal to be viewed on a regular basis. And so certainly your first time seeing uh, a body that has been there so long, you can't even determine uh, what race they are. Uh, and that's not normal, right? I mean, so uh, just seeing that, I think taking that in doesn't mean you're not ready for it, but uh, you may just need to calm down and, and go back through the motions. But it's good that y'all have something in place that if they're sort of recognizing that about the cell thing, still finish their their uh, degree, it may end up sort of in the same situation as as the writer of, of this question that they finished, realize that that's something that they can't do and and maybe there's another option for that degree mm-hmm. for sure how many interns do y'all take on on a regular basis um we typically will have no more than two each semester so we um are generally interviewing for at least one if not two semesters beyond the current um you know, barring the the mode that we're in right now, typically I would be interviewing for the fall um, fall semester and potentially even the spring of 2021 at this point. Um, but we try to limit it to two, just so for multiple reasons. Um, number one, space. So you know, I mean, you've seen our lab where we have limited real estate without the ability of expanding at the current point. So we don't want to overload too much. Um, We try to keep it as fair as possible so that um, if we do have two interns, they have the ability um, to be exposed to as much as possible and have a pretty regular rotation. Um, And also not to overburden the CSI so that they are not distracted on scene. They're still able to teach and um, provide valuable information without compromising anything with the investigation. So now, uh, obviously, I, I looked for you know uh, news articles, different issues facing law enforcement. That's sort of you know things that we talk about. Um, and obviously, what is saturated the news right now is, of course, the virus and COVID nineteen and how all of us are dealing with that. So. Um, in talking about that, I know that y'all came up with a plan, uh, with y'all's lab and doing rotation. So under, under this current situation we're in, what, what are y'all doing, uh, different or how are y'all doing rotations and stuff with people? Charlie, you want to handle that? Sure. Okay. So, um, you know, we, we really thought that this was, that we were going to be cutting edge and, and, you know, we were forward thinking by splitting our lab in half and making essentially two teams, one team working from home, the other team working in the lab, handling call outs for the week. And then on the weekend, we would switch to the call out team would be at home for the week. And then the the work at home team would come to work and handle the call outs. Um, and then I had the opportunity to chat with my colleagues um, associated with the bloodstain community from around the world. 
and almost all crime scene teams have split their lab where there is no cross-contamination between teams in case you know, one team would, would be exposed and have to quarantine or, or, you know, someone in that team would get sick. And so it was amazing. Even today I was on a, um, a webcast and I, in the chat bar, I recognize several people and, and one of my friends from Grand Prairie, they are solely being called out from home. They're not going to the office at all unless it's to take their evidence in, drop it off and leave. So because they're, they have such a small crime scene team, they are not even chancing one of those people, you know, passing it to a coworker. So they are strictly working from home, which I just think is phenomenal in 22 years of being, you know, at the sheriff's office, we've never done anything like this. And so when it came about, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is amazing, you know, on the, on the forward thinking. Um, but then it's, it makes me very proud that agencies from around the world are doing the same thing. My colleagues in Australia, my colleague in the UK, they're all doing split shifts where they're working from home for a week or two weeks, and then they're in the office for a week while the other teams are at home. So I, I just think that that's safe. I think that that's smart, um, you know, because if, if we had an exposure and then the whole crime lab was exposed, if you have your entire crime scene team out for 14 days, who is going to work your biggest cases? You know, who do you call? when everybody is taxed. Yeah. I mean, it's the same reason that, uh, you know, we've, we've sent, uh, pretty much all our detectives home. I mean, they can still type things, still make the phone calls they can do still things on their investigations. But, uh, and the main reason is not so much on the detective side, it's more on the patrol side. If we start getting patrol officers that are going out because, uh, they've become affected with the virus and they start going down, well, Who's going to fill their spots? Sure. And that's where detectives are going to be coming from home and putting back on a uniform and uh, getting back in the car and, and doing the patrol functions because that that is the backup plan, right? Absolutely. Now, the, the, the other impact, you're talking about Grand Prairie. So, obviously, so they're taking their evidence there, but there's not a time that they're coming back processing any of this. Correct. They are, they are doing storage only, and they are doing their – they are telecommuting from their residents and, you know, probably similar to us. So we are completely set up. Um, like I have my desk, I've got a, my work computer, I've got a VPN token that I can patch into our county system. Um, I have a scanner, I have a printer that, you know, are mine, but there were documents last week that I had to sign. And so I was able to print them out. Um, sign them, scan them, and then email them back to, you know, the office and to our finance division, all right here from the house. I didn't have to go to the office. I didn't, you know, so I never even had to go in the building even after hours, which keeps the team working there, right? I'm not bringing anything from my house and bringing it into the office. And then I'm not picking up anything that maybe they would have had at a scene and bringing it home. So I just... 
everyone is doing so well at abiding by the rules, by sheltering in place, by work, you know, and, and I just, I just think it's really smart. So how have the call-outs been? Have, have, uh, around just looking at some of the news stories around the nation, it seems as though violent crimes and call-outs are down as a whole. Have you all experienced the same? I think, sorry, I think initially it seemed like it peaked or it, it, it increased. Um, and I don't know that it was necessarily we were overly aware or overly sensitive to it, but it, as far as the amount of scenes that, that our team responded to that first rotation, I would say it definitely increased from a normal week. Um, since then, knock on wood, I don't want to jinx us, but it, it seems like it has calmed down a little bit. Um, we, I feel like we're kind of in a more normal mode right now, but we're all very well aware that the potential exists for it to spike and increase and continue to increase all the way through. Um, and I think that's kind of everybody's fear is that that will happen. Well, and I mean, it's, you know, it's just projecting. I mean, that I know um, in the, I think it was just yesterday, I think they had like three robberies that I saw just in our, in our county around that. And that's just what hit the news. That's not just like our department or whatever. Right. And I think we're sort of expecting that just Mm -hmm. because as time goes on and people are out of jobs, they don't have money. um, You know, don't get me wrong. There's a, majority of the citizens that are doing exactly what they're supposed to do and you know they're surviving the best they can and they're you know getting uh the services that uh, people are offering but there's also that small percentage that when they don't get what they need they turn to crime and uh, i think that we're probably going to see an increase in robberies and thefts and and those type of things and hopefully not so much to the violent side uh, that, you know, it's more shoplifting and those type of things. But I think the potential is certainly there. I agree. And I think, I think that's kind of what we're, we're anticipating or we're geared up for. Not that we want it to happen. Obviously we don't, um, but we're prepared for that. So what has, um, so I know that whenever this first hit, um, all of us were facing the, um, the lack of PPE equipment to get to patrol, to give to everybody. And, you know, it also made me, uh, sort of just think in general, as far as, as crime scene and such, you know, and I'm not sure if it's just cause we see it in a news story or what, but normally when I see agencies, in other parts of the world, it seems like they're wearing this full Tyvek suit everywhere they go. Right. And then I see here that we have gloves, mask, and I don't mean the virus. I mean, just before all the virus, right. It doesn't seem like we suit up like that on, on everything. And what do you think the difference is? Charlie. I think it's, you know, for us, it is a, it's a health safety issue, um, those bunny suits or the Tyvek suits, so the full white hazmat suit, those by OSHA standards are good for 15 minutes. You are supposed to only be in that suit 
worn correctly with it zipped up with the hood on with the mask on, you are only supposed to be in that suit for 15 minutes before you're supposed to come out of that suit and rehydrate. And, you know, it it's, takes, you know, an hour just to take your overall scene, photo, you know, photographs on a, on a big scene where you would be in that suit to begin with. Um, and so it, it is safer for you to have shoe covers, gloves, a mask, possibly a face shield or some kind of goggles than it is to be in a full Tyvek suit um, because you run the risk of dehydrating and getting heat stroke. And that's not even considering the fact of where we're talking about where it stays 100% humidity and <laughs> asphalt turns to a liquid state in the summertime. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> But so, I mean, are they actually wearing it for the full scene work in other countries? Is is there, is it just, that's just what it's portrayed as? You know, it, Do you know all people that you spoke with? Sure. So that's all going to be by SOP on what your, your scene response is going to, you know, how, how you are going to process crime scenes in places, you know, my home state of Wyoming wearing a Tyvek suit might actually be perfect because you have winter up there for nine months out of the year. So that suit does provide warmth, you know, because it holds all your body heat in. And so in places where you don't have the surface temperature of the sun most of the year, right? <laughs> it, it's a lot easier to wear those suits to every single crime scene, as opposed to the, you know, those of us at work in, in Southern states where it it's dangerous. Now there are times where, you know what, you will deal with the potential of getting heat stroke because the thought of having to burn your boots and your uniform when you finish processing the scene, <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm willing to, You're about to lay down in that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you just know that, you know, you've got to, send one of your deputies, you know, or your patrol officers to the store to get several bottles of Gatorade because, you know, you're going to have to sit there and rehydrate. Um, and, and so for us, it is a scene investigator call. It's not mandated by policy. It's, it's really the CSI's discretion. So with, um, <laughs> With all of the patrol now having to wear masks and um, gloves, and, and and obviously I, I was I would hope the patrol already had gloves that they're already wearing these things on a regular basis. So uh, I would think we would have had enough for that. I think masks are something that they didn't have. It's not something normally that we're wearing. Um, I know that I've seen a change as this has gone on. I know originally it was you don't need the mask. Than it was only if you felt uh, you were coming into a situation where it was probable. Um, now some agencies are saying you wear a mask on everything. Some aren't. Um, I know that um, 
we've had, at least in Texas, for the emergency center. I know that uh, we have different emergency operations that happen uh, around the country, and they, they all work under the same standard. I know in Texas, we we had uh, an order for like 5 million of these masks to go out to to um, first responders, and now there's a company that's making like 2 million a week uh, to come out. So uh, I think that we're starting to get the supplies now. I know that, uh, we had to make our own for a little bit. So, uh, somewhat of a funny story on that is, you know, we couldn't find hand sanitizer, uh, a local pharmacy down here, uh, which, um, put out a video because you couldn't find the, uh, alcohol in the stores, uh, to mix and things. So anyway, so we got a recipe for, uh, Everclear and uh, some other items, and that was Magnolia Pharmacy that put that out. So anybody that still needs some that can't find some, they can they can make that. But uh, it was um, I, I don't know if you understand this, but when you go into a liquor store with the county credit card, it gets declined. <laughs> uh, so we had to get uh, we had to get that cleared so we could buy alcohol with our county credit card to, to mix the stuff up. So. I know that y'all y'all had to come up with things too to get uh, stuff out there in the lab and all. Um, it's just something that that we're dealing with. I know currently, I guess we we're expecting May to sort of do an evaluation, but um, I think honestly we're probably looking at about two more months of of really being cautious and everything with this and. Um, do you feel that we should or are handling crime scenes any different than we were before? I think we absolutely have to at least have a more heightened awareness and caution in dealing with them. Um, I think there are times where we can use a little bit more discretion on um you know, how many people we choose to have respond or in what capacity, um, you know, there's, there's things we can be a little bit more selective on without compromising any, any investigation aspect of it. Um, but certainly just the potential, uh, for any witnesses to have been exposed or to be sick themselves, certainly if it's a DOA, the potential for that and the environment in which we're going into. Um, I know we've already had some death investigations where the particular residents might have been on the radar um, for one one thing or another in, con- you know, in, in um, consideration for COVID. And so EMS would either restrict the amount of patrol officers that made entry into the scene or they would... Um, take the patrolman's camera and take photographs for the patrolman to keep them out of the scene so that there was less potential for them to be exposed. Um, so I think there's, there's precautions like that. Like you mentioned, the PPE, um, we're probably, I would assume, or go out on a limb and say that we are wearing more PPE uh, currently than we would maybe, go, you know, like Chelly said, it's, it's the CSI discretion. Um, but now we, we are telling all of our CSIs, make sure you have your PPEs on. Right. I mean, the, the standard going into any crime scene, I mean, we've, 
always had our gloves and throw on some booties. And, uh, I think, um, one of the, uh, I guess, options or things that sometimes I'd see people wear didn't on others was mask. I'm sure that's like a, that's on every time now. Uh, I know as DNA, it became more sensitive. It became more common that we always had it on also. So, you know, I think, as you said, I think it's just more being aware that um, there's potential for um, the virus and, and exposure and, and things that, I mean, we're always wearing it to protect our evidence, to protect us. But now I think it just goes beyond for, for more safety reasons. I think so. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm glad that there's more awareness with it too. Thank you for joining us today. It's because of listeners like you that make this show a success. This show is currently on every major podcast and listened to in 13 countries around the world, along with here local at our Lone Star Radio in Conroe, Texas on FM 104.5 and 106.1. If you have a question that you would like answered, if you'd like to be a guest, or if you'd like to sponsor the show, please contact me at dan at crimescenetoday.com. We look forward to seeing you next week. Be safe.